Welcome to our Holden Village podcast. For over 50 years now, Holden Village has traveled a rich history of faith that has transformed a copper mining town into a vibrant place of education, programming, and worship. Holden has sought to welcome all who seek contemplation and community in the remote wilderness of the beautiful Cascade Mountains. We continue to invite people of all ages to come alongside our rhythms, which inspire and equip travelers for a sustainable life of faith outside the village. And we continue to listen and reflect on our story and history and seek to discover our place in God's creative mission in our world. Our podcasts are a way of sharing our conversations with our teaching faculty around reformation, the reforming of our relationships with the earth, with each other, and with the divine. Let's tune in and join the conversation. Hi, I'm Ben Stewart. I'm a professor at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago, where I teach worship and eco-theology. I serve as the convener of the Ecology and Liturgy Seminar of the North American Academy of Liturgy. And my path to graduate school in this field of ecology and liturgy started here at Holden in many ways. I served as village pastor from 2000 to 2003, and I was so struck, especially in the season of Advent, the way that the scripture texts in worship were all about light and darkness. And at that time of year here in the Holden Valley, we have about 25 minutes of direct sunlight. So we were really aware of the cycles of light and darkness. So my experience here at Holden kind of captivated me and said, I want to go study the way Christian ritual interacts with the natural world. So I went back to Emory University, got my PhD, published my first book in 2011 called A Watered Garden, Christian Worship and Earth's Ecology. And for the last few years, I've been researching the natural burial movement. And I'll talk a little bit about that today. And it, that included this past November, I took a 300-mile backpacking trip visiting dozens of backcountry wilderness cemeteries in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. So today, I want to talk a little bit about the way we can pray along with the earth, with the earth as kind of a partner in prayer. Sometimes I think about the natural world functioning the way muezzin functions at Islamic mosque. That's the person who stands up at the top of that tall pillar and calls people to pray. And I bet you've had the same experience. Maybe you're hiking and you come over a saddle and you see a valley open up before you and your spirit goes kind of instinctively to prayer. Or you see the sunrise over Lake Michigan, or a beautiful sunset, or even just the rustling of tree leaves invites us into prayer in pretty profound ways. So nature is kind of calling us into prayer. And so I want to look at three different ways in which we might be partners to the natural world in prayer. The first one is fire itself. And Holden and this valley certainly have an interesting relationship with fire, which kind of gets at the way religion has thought about the symbol of fire. It has a kind of ambivalence to it. I want to read a little quote from Gail Ramshaw in, from her book, Treasures Old and New, Images in the Lectionary, and her section on fire. Fire functions as a multivalent metaphor. We hear that despite the devastation wrought by a major fire in a beloved national forest, a fire that ruined the vacation plans of deeply disappointed tourists, some species of trees require periodic fire for their seeds to be released from the cones. 
Fire is both destructive and beneficial, and many of the world's religions use this ambiguity for symbolic purposes. So I think it's interesting to think about holding in our hearts a symbol like fire that has both destructive, death-dealing properties and life-giving properties. I think it gives us a more kind of complex and nuanced relationship to the world. We could think even in biblical terms of the image of the burning bush. So here's this symbol of powerful fire burning that we often associate with a kind of power, but it doesn't consume. It doesn't destroy this bush that Moses notices. And in fact, this powerful fire then calls out to Moses and says, I need you, Moses, to attend what I've been attending to, which is to the cry of the oppressed, the cry of the people who seem to be powerless, the people enslaved. So we could think about fire as an image of great mysterious power that could possibly destroy us, but actually the fire that we come to know in God is a fire that stands with the powerless, that stands with those who are weak and does not destroy them, but actually raises them up and gives them power. One other image would be in the Christian tradition, we often connect the image of fire with the day of Pentecost, which many Christians think, hey, Pentecost was like the church's birthday. It was the first Pentecost. It actually was a Jewish festival long before it was a Christian festival. And it was the day that Jews celebrate the giving of the law on Mount Sinai when God appears as fire on top of the mountain to deliver the law. So on that same festival, Christians celebrate, not only does God give the law on Sinai, but also comes in tongues of fire on each of us. Each of us hold that divine fire and carry it within us. And we can speak God's word to each other as well across even great lines of cultural difference and division. Jesus has a kind of ambivalent relationship to the image of fire himself. From Luke 9, If you, you may remember that his disciples approach him when somebody won't follow them and Let me read that text for you. Jesus sent messengers ahead of him, and on their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for Jesus. But those Samaritans did not receive Jesus because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When Jesus' disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So in that text, while James and John, Jesus' disciples, out of kind of zealous faith, want to use fire in the way we often characterize it for religious purposes, like Zeus hurling a thunderbolt. Jesus rebukes that kind of fire, and it's a more gentle fire that he wants to bring about. I want to close thinking about fire with a great poem by Lucille Clifton called John, and it's obviously invoking John as the one who says that he will come to baptize, or he's announcing the presence of one who will come and baptize with fire. Somebody coming in blackness like a star, and the world be a great bush on his head, and his eyes be fire in the city, and his mouth be true as time. He be calling the people brother, even in the prison, even in the jail. I'm just only a Baptist preacher, somebody bigger than me coming in blackness like a star. Another image of how we might pray with the earth is the earth in its wounded and scarred state. So one of the gifts I think that science has given religion, and especially religions like Christianity that had a, an image of the universe 
that had the Earth basically being about half the universe, with the rest of the universe, the other half being the dome of the sky. What science has given us is an image of the Earth as this really tiny speck in space. And it's alive. And we know now also that it's mortal. It had a beginning. At some point in history, our sun will expand and consume it. But it breathes and it circulates. And in many ways, the best way to think about the Earth is as a fellow creature along with us that is mortal and alive and in need of healing. So to think about the Earth itself as a creature in need of healing may also invite us to think about the way that our own bodies are Earth and in need of a kind of earthly healing. So I want to read a little paragraph from a book of mine about thinking about the way Jesus interacts with bodies made of earth, as we think about our bodies, earth to earth, ashes to ashes. Many of the bodies, or the earth, that Jesus touches in his ministry are earth that has been thrown out of balance, mistreated, abused, or they're simply suffering for unknown reasons, and they're not whole, they're not flourishing. In Jesus' day, many of these bodies would have literally been called polluted. People like the lepers, the bleeding women, the sinners, feet were considered dirty and polluted, the sick and the dead. Jesus' ministry with these bodies, these breathing plots of land, is to restore them to wholeness, to fruitfulness, to restore their relationships within and without. I'd say to cultivate what we might even call ecological flourishing. This is part of a process that the New Testament calls salvation. Salvation is wholeness or health in its deepest sense, and it's closely akin to what we might call ecological integrity. So this body of earth being at peace with itself and in healthy relationship with the earth around it. One of the things I notice when I go visit congregations is that almost every Christian congregation has a ministry of healing. And that means that in Sunday worship, they pray for people who are in need of healing, and that prayer is connected with action. If you pray for people in need of healing, people from the church will also go to the hospital. They'll take care of the family members who are maybe left at home. If someone's ill because they're addicted to tobacco or drugs or alcohol, people will help those people fight that addiction and be healed of that addiction. So prayer is connected with action, and that connection is, is really not controversial. We just know we pray for healing. We act also in response to it, even, of course, supporting doctors, nurses, and all the, the healing vocations that we have. I think if we come to think about the earth's need for healing, we could make that connection also in ways that are less politically charged and less controversial than they often are today. We pray for the healing of the earth. So we pray for the health of local forests, our local air, landforms, and watersheds. And then, of course, not only do we lift them up in prayer, but we actively work for their healing to protect them and to bear witness to their woundedness and the injustices that those bodies undergo. So that's one way of, of connecting our prayer in worship, our prayer life within, and the life of the earth, to pray actively for the earth's healings, to attend to its wounds and scars. And, of course, with all our imagery of the wounded and scarred body of Christ that is even put to death, but then raised up. This can give us a kind of religious relationship to the earth that allows the earth even to be a kind of sacrament of the body of Christ as well.
And last, speaking of burial and death, I wanted to say a little bit about a movement called conservation burial, in which people are being buried in, in very natural ways, no chemical embalming, being wrapped in a shroud or put in a simple pine box. And then in conservation burial, the legal protections for the body as it's buried in the ground is used to protect a natural area from any kind of development. And so those bodies, even as they lie in the ground, are giving the gift to future generations of an area that will be preserved in a wild and flourishing state. If you're interested in learning more about that, you can check out the website of the Green Burial Council, or I'd also recommend Suzanne Kelly's new book, Greening Death, Reclaiming Burial Practices and Restoring Our Tie to the Earth. I mentioned that I recently did a backpacking trip as part of my research into natural burial in the Great Smoky Mountains. And I want to read just a little section of a recent article that I published on that experience and the way that it transformed my prayer life as I walked among these 100-year-old graves and prayed morning prayer, evening prayer, and compline or night prayer every day on this three-week-long pilgrimage. One morning, the first few miles of trail wound through shallow creek basins, mostly keeping low where the cold, catabatic air stayed, and I could see the sun beginning to touch some of the trees higher in other basins. My blood was still moving slowly, and I longed to get into that sunlight from the shadows. I had heard the previous day about a small cemetery in this area, and soon I came to a rough, unmarked side trail cutting uphill through the mountain laurel. This was the type of trail that sometimes led to the Smokies' backcountry cemeteries. I'd begun to learn to find where these cemeteries were located. There were very few of them among the highest peaks that climb from the old farmsteads would have been too much. And cemeteries usually weren't near the river bottoms either, where the floods might wash over the graves. Typically, they were laid out along a shoulder or carved out of a knob some distance above the old home sites. I could see such a shoulder above me. As the trail climbed through an irregular set of switchbacks, I was glad to see the sunlight moving down the mountain closer to me. The trail turned one last time and crested onto the shoulder. I slipped into the back row of maybe ten graves a century old, just as the sun was first breaking through the bare trees across the valley. I watched the faces of those east-facing stones receive their first light of that day. For a century, they had watched and waited for every dawn, the sunrise meant that it was time to sing, so among those stones and in that light, I sang, or we sang, I believe, the Benedictus, the classic canticle of both morning prayer and Christian burial. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. As in most of the cemeteries I visited, half of the stones stood over the graves of children. The Spanish flu of 1918 and 1919 especially cratered the mountain cemeteries. I imagined parents laying a first, a second, a third child into the ground under those trees. At each death, they dug the lines of the grave towards sunrise. They raised these standing stones to keep vigil for a greater dawn. Malachi writes, The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And I wondered, was I standing at least partly in the light for which they had been watching and waiting? 
Certainly some of the hopes in which they lived and died have been fulfilled. Ministries of healing, including prenatal care, vaccinations, nutrition, hygiene and sanitation, antibiotics, now illuminate the daily lives of those who live beneath the Smokies today. When I sing the Benedictus these days, I see in my mind's eyes the graves across the Smokies turned toward the dawn in hope. Around the world, Christians have turned the bodies of their dead toward the rising sun. For those of us who still walk above the ground in the light, how do we relate to the hopes of our ancestors in faith? In what hope will we eventually lay our own bodies down? So that's just a little essay that expresses the way in which even in laying our bodies down back in the earth, earth to earth, dust to dust, two things we can keep in mind. The way in which Christians have classically oriented their graves to the sunrise in whatever place that they lay their bodies down. This sense of even in death, we have this continued hope of a greater dawn. And then also just the peaceful rest of returning our bodies earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, where we let our beloved dead rest in peace and in the promise of God. So those are three ways that we might be able to pray along with the earth, with the kind of ambivalence of the power of fire that breathes with passion for the powerless, with concern and attention to the wounds and scars of the earth praying for its healings, and with attention to our own bodies made of dust even as we lay our bodies down, looking for the dawn of a greater day. Thanks for joining us for another Holden Village podcast. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information, or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.